Our doctor is in, and so are the doctors of Capital Health. Welcome to the all-new Health 411. Every Sunday morning at 10, Dr. Jonathan Karp, along with our respected panel of guests from Capital Health, take you on an important medical journey to help you navigate your health and the healthcare system. To reach your destination, good health. Health 411 is underwritten by Capital Health. Minds advancing medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff, as well as advanced technology. 1077 The Bronx. 1077thebronc.com proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 and 2021 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are recording from the Bronx All Digital Studios on the Lawrenceville campus of Ryder University. Welcome to Health 411. I am your host, Professor Jonathan Karp. This Health 411 program is presented by Capital Health Medical Center. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the science of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand knowledge and perspective. Today, we are recording with our student producer, Daniel Geller, and our guest, Dr. Veda, Dr. Darshan Veda, from Aura Dermatology in Robbinsville, New Jersey. Welcome to our program, Dr. Veda. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. Um, and what I often do here is sort of to, you know, sort of help students who may be listening, thinking about careers in our guests. Can you tell us about your background um, and how that led you to a career as in dermatology? Sure. So I come from a family of physicians. And in fact, you'd be interested to learn that my last name actually means doctor in, in, oh, our, culture, in, our, cool. in our language. So um, more focusing on the Ayurvedic physician or the, you know, the more Eastern um, type of medicine. So I, you know, from a young age was exposed to medicine. Um, I wasn't sure I wanted to become a doctor, but as I kind of progressed through school and, and kind of had to make that decision, um, I knew that that's where my interests lie. And so I pursued, um, you know, an under, undergraduate degree in cell biology and neuroscience. I'm at Rutgers University um, and I was pre-med, mm -hmm. at which point I, um, applied to medical school and attended um, UMDNJ, which is now also Rutgers Medical School in Newark. After which point, um, you know, when I went into medical school, I was not sure at all, you know, what my interests were in within medicine. Um, so I kind of kept my um, options open. And it wasn't until I did various rotations um, that I finally came across dermatology and, and just had an amazing time during that rotation, just seeing the diversity that I had to offer, um, just seeing different patient populations and compared to everything else that I had done, I also felt like, you know, it also had a good balance between, you know, surgical, cosmetic, uh, medical. Uh, so there's, there was a lot of different aspects to it that um, really, really jogged my interest. Mm. And that's when I really focused my energy on doing publications and, you know, getting really my feet wet with that. And, um, and then that's what kind of led me to finally you know, apply for and pursue dermatology. Excellent. Is there a, a specific for students who might be like you, so they knew they wanted to go to medical school doing on the traditional pre-med path. Is there a type that, uh, things that one would look for that, that you might say to a student, these are the things that, that about me that made me really like it. And if, you're, if, the, if you have some of these same traits, you should really look at dermatology because it might be a career path you'll be real happy in. Mm-hmm. 
from a very young age. I mean, I, I always gravitated to math and science. I mean, I know it's, mm -hmm. it's cliche to say, you know, you're either, you know, uh, language arts and, and more abstract or you're more methodical in math and science. But from a very young age, I mean, I always excelled at math and science and those were always my favorite subjects. So, you know, I, I knew from, a, from an early on um, that I wanted to do something in the sciences. Um, now, when it comes to medicine, you know, I, I explored other options along the way, you know, I thought, well, maybe you should go into engineering or maybe I should go, go into pharmacy. I worked as a pharmacy technician for a few years to kind of, you know, get some exposure. Um, but upon you know, exploring different avenues, working as a tech, I realized, you know what, I'm not, I don't really feel like I'm fulfilled. You know, I feel like I really need to be, you know, in the medical space. Um, I did some shadowing, you know, even as a, as a high school student and as a college student, um, I shadowed at Robert Wood Johnson and I shadowed um, community doctors just to kind of see, you know, what their day-to-day -day life is like. And my advice to young listeners would be, make sure that you truly, truly have a passion for it. Medicine is definitely a long road and you have to truly enjoy it um, to not only pursue it, but excel in it. And even as a career, um, really practice it well for, you know, years and years to come. Yeah. And in, in the, in, as you're talking about the path, the path is not just medical school. After medical school, there's more training involved. Can you tell us the, yes. the dermatology path after medical school? Yeah, so I um, pursued um, a transitional internship, which transitional internship means it's not one specific um, specialty. It, it almost is like your fourth year of medical school, except you're an intern. So I did a transitional internship at St. Barnabas um, University Hospital there in Livingston, New Jersey. And at, after that point, we did three years of dermatology residency up at Brown in Rhode Island. So total, it's four years of residency after medical school um, to become a board certified dermatologist. And then for those who choose to pursue fellowship beyond that, there are several options in Mohs surgery, cosmetic dermatology, dermatopathology, and so forth. It sounds like you decided not to do that. You decided to like a salmon coming back home to New Jersey. I'm assuming <laughs> you're... So you, can't, you can't take us out of Jersey for too long. That's right. So you came back and um, and you started a private practice here in, in New Jersey in, in the local area. Um, what is it about New Jersey that made it a good place for you to practice dermatology? Is it just the family here or are there things about, you know, skin that that is unique to New Jersey? I mean, for me, it was all about family. I mean, okay. I have a huge family. Um, I have, my dad has eight brothers and sisters, seven of whom are within a one hour driving distance from where we reside. So grew up with a huge family and having been a Jersey guy my whole life, you know, I went to Rutgers, I went to UMDNJ, even my college and medical school friends um, ultimately settled in the state. So it was always just a good coming back home, if you will. And you know, for me, the, the, having that family support, having a good social life, in addition to um, that work, you know, I'm always I'm big on work-life balance. That was very important to me. And luckily, uh, my wife, after we got married while I was in residency, was okay with moving to Jersey. You know, <laughs> we don't really have the best reputation, you know, everywhere else. Yeah. She's from the Midwest. So um, I had to 
you know, win her, win her approval and win, win her over in, in that decision. And, and you did it. Well, it, it sounds like your path um, going through Rutgers and UMDNJ or Rutgers Med, uh, Medical School now is very similar for a lot of the path that the Ryder students take. We have a lot of students that are New Jersey born and bred and want to stay very, very close um, kinds of things. Um, and so when so let, let, let's take the conversation a little bit away from, from you and let's talk about the field of dermatology. And when we teach about dermatology, or we don't really teach dermatology, we're not medical school, but we teach about the largest organ in your body is your skin, right? Is that yes. how you approach looking at the, the field in, in, in general? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important, you know, a lot of times, you know, people assume dermatology is just very superficial, you know, cosmetics and, you know, you, you th see um, different um, perceptions on social media and, you know, whether it's print, you know, um, movies and shows, whatnot, but dermatology is a very, very vast, vast specialty. I mean, there's 3000 or more individual disease states that affect the hair, skin and the nails, all of which we have to train with. Um, obviously dermatology, like ophthalmology, you know, um, can be a link to what's going on underneath the skin as well. So a lot of times, you know, we see and diagnose um, conditions that a patient may not even know they have because we see certain indications on their skin. So important that you kind of take that entire picture into consideration. Um, so in that regard, it's very vast. We are also during our training exposed to treating patients of all ages. So being familiar with the pediatric population, you know, the geriatric population and everyone in between. And that's that's the, another aspect of it that I absolutely love. You know, when you do other specialties, you you almost feel like there's a monotony to it, if you will. You know, you're seeing the same patient type or the same you know conditions on, on an almost daily basis. Whereas for me, I enjoy the fact that I have no clue what's walking in that day. You know, I may see you know a lot of kids that day. I may be doing a lot of cosmetic procedures that day. I may be doing a lot of surgeries that day. So I do enjoy that diversity that it also offers. And lastly, for people who are very visual and very, you know, you know, and enjoy working with their hands, you know, there is kind of an aesthetic and artistic component to dermatology as well. You know, when you are seeing patients that are coming in because they want to look better as well as feel better, um, that aspect of it, you know, kind of, you know, also adds another dimension of this aesthetic, if you will. So I, I truly just enjoy that diversity that it has to offer. Yeah. And um, I would hope that students who are listening are, are heeding your words because that happens a lot in any profession that if you're a certain kind, it, it, the things beca can become repetitive, but it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be with a, with a lot of um, variety of people. And I, I, I want to talk too about one of the interesting things about New Jersey is the diversity of people of all different kinds of skin colors and skin things. Oh, absolutely. And, we, and I would like to continue the conversation and learn more about those kinds of things and how that things present with different kinds of people in your practice. But we're gonna take a quick break for some underwriting announcements here on Health 411. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from the Digital Bronx Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and I am here today having a conversation with Dr. Dashan Veda. Dr. Veda is the 
is a board-certified dermatologist, and he's the owner-operator of Aura Dermatology in Robbinsville, New Jersey, not that far from the Ryder campus. And we are talking about his, his path into becoming a dermatologist and what dermatology is. And at the end of the last segment, I just brought up the idea, trying to get an idea of the kinds of things that people come to a dermatologist to go see, present with. And I want to ask Dr. Veda that in the context of the diversity of people that are here in New Jersey. It's a very, very diverse state. Is is everybody's skin the same or does do certain kinds of things show up with different people of different kinds of skin? Great question. Um, I'll actually start by saying, I know you asked me earlier, um, was there something special about New Jersey? And I had said family is really what brought me here. But from a dermatologic point of view, you're absolutely right. I mean, New Jersey has a very, very wide diversity in our patient population. And we're very lucky to see patients of all skin types and from all walks of life in all of our communities. So that is very, very interesting on a daily basis um, because not every, not every ethnicity, if you will, uh, manifests with skin conditions the same way. So we'll start with obviously the most um, common thing that we see, you know, um, a lot of skin cancers, which preferentially tend to be more in our, you know, um, Caucasian patients, lighter skin patients, although they do, they can occur in everyone. We see them in a higher incidence in, in that population. We see a fair number of hyperpigmentation and um, hair loss and various conditions of those sorts in some of our ethnic populations, which we may not necessarily see much in our um, Caucasian population. So again, different presentations of diseases, even common things such as acne, eczema, psoriasis, um, vitiligo. Um, there are different presentations of how, of how those conditions would look in um, patients with different skin types. So um, very, very interesting to see that manifestation on a daily basis. And it also kind of, um, you know, affects how you approach the treatment algorithm. You know, there are different things that I would be looking for in certain populations and different approaches to treatment in certain populations. Yeah. Are the treatments the same? Like if somebody comes in, um, I, don't, uh, I don't know, acne, you mentioned, right? Is acne treated the same way is all skin the same, if irrespective of the color of it, if somebody comes in with that issue or other issues? So there are, there are certain nuances to acne that are the same for everyone, right? So there's, you know, the acne bacteria and there's clogged pores and there's hormonal mm. changes with puberty and there's, you know, um, oily skin and sebum. So some aspects of acne treatment are definitely the same or overlapping, I should say, you know, that consist of various types of creams and aesthetic procedures and lasers and such. But where the nuances come in are, at certain populations, for example, um, Indian patients, um, African-American patients may present with a lot more pigmentary concerns, a lot more scarring concerns that say other ethnicities may not be facing with. So in those populations, we do have to cater our treatment algorithm to um, tackle some of these specific issues. So for the most part, there are a lot of similarities, but then there are nuances, you know, with you know, different manifestations of the disease. So it's certainly not one size fits all when it comes to something like Absolutely that. Not. And 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 for other skin conditions, um, I, you mentioned psoriasis. So I'm just picking things that you mentioned. Um, and you also mentioned, and, and so is psoriasis something that comes from what, like you said, from within or psoriasis something that comes from things that people are exposed to? Again, I, I mentioned that in the context of living here in New Jersey. 
Yeah, so mm -hmm. usually psoriasis, um, like eczema, tends to be from within. So it's an immunologic um, disease. Um, generally, there is um, thought to be exacerbating factors. So certain medications can bring it on. Certain infections, you know, strep throat, other viral infections can bring on certain subtypes of psoriasis. But by and large, it's an immunologic and genetically predisposed of a disease state. Um, and very, very prevalent, you know, I would say overall prevalence of about two to 3%, you know, in the U.S. population. So something we see very often. In, in the, you know, and so as a dermatologist, do you work with immunologists or other people to try to treat patients who have these things or do, do, do dermatologists sort of do it on their own? So usually we are doing it on our own. I mean, mm -hmm. um, in our training, you know, that we are exposed to a wide variety of these um, diseases and, you know, through work with some of our mentors and obviously seeing patients and you learn a lot from your patients, you know, you kind of become you know, more and more comfortable treating some of these conditions. And to some of our young listeners, I just want to also stress that you never stop learning, right? So we're always learning new things. We're always attending CME conferences or continuing medication education conferences and always you know, bettering ourselves, you know, learning more, acquiring more knowledge to better equip us to treat some of these conditions. So for the most part, we do treat a lot of these conditions ourselves. Now, that's not to say, you know, if we need to phone a friend that we can't, you know, collaborate with colleagues in different specialties to help. But for the most part, we do treat everything. Mm -hmm. uh, if there's a, is there a typical patient profile in, in your, in your practice? Um, I mean, I think it varies. Um, we generally do see a lot of, you know, middle-aged um, patients that come in for um, skin checks and they may say, you know, I have a family history of skin cancer or I have a lot of moles that I want to have checked out. So that's definitely one, you know, category of patients that we see fairly often. Mm -hmm. But then that same patient may bring in, you know, a, a parent and say, you know, I haven't, older parent that has skin cancers and uh, needs treatment, or they may bring in their kids acne and eczema and rashes and, and other things. So, so typically I would say, you know, it's a good mix, but it, it all comes down to, you know, what the demographic of that particular community is. So in Robbinsville, for example, we see, you know, a very, very wide diversity of patients um, in, in Somerset where our other location is, we also see a lot of college kids. So, um, you know, where we may not really see that many in, in Robbinsville. So everyone's always bringing a new perspective and pretty, pretty much just take it as it comes. Yeah. So that's the typical patient now. So what, what sort of procedures would you do on a daily basis? Like what does a normal day look, or is there no type of normal day? So my normal day usually consists of kind of a mix between doing um, full full skin exams, and which means you know we're looking over everyone's skin top to bottom, looking for anything that looks atypical, checking out your moles, doing skin cancer screenings. I may have in uh, mixed in a few cosmetic patients that are coming in for various procedures like Botox or fillers or lasers. Um, I may see you know you know college kids like yourself, Dan, or um, high school kids coming in for acne. Um, I may be doing a couple of surgeries. So we oftentimes will do you know, skin cancer surgeries in the office. So, and generally I enjoy the hodgepodge. I mean, I have colleagues that um, enjoy kind of 
breaking up their week, you know, with surgeries on Monday and cosmetics on Tuesday and so forth. I personally like to walk into a hodgepodge and look at my schedule on a daily basis and say, hey, this is what I'm in for. So anything or any combination thereof um, is good for me. So, uh, so you mentioned two cosmetic things. I think a lot of people who, not you, but there are people who think of dermatology and they think it's only about, you know, creating a look, you know, a look that you want or things like that. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it seems to me you're presenting that the, the people who are dermatologists do a lot more than that. Oh, absolutely. I, I would say the vast majority of my day and my week is focused on medical dermatology and cosmetics is always a part of it because a lot, for example, with acne, right? You treat the acne, but now if you're left with scars or pigmentation and you say, look, well, I'm still bothered by my appearance, you know, your acne may be better, but you may still not be happy with how your skin looks. So a lot of times it goes hand in hand. Um, So my goal is always to offer the patient, not only the optimal medical care, but then I also want them to feel comfortable in their own skin. You know, I want them to live life in their best skin. And, and that's where the cosmetic piece comes in. Now, mind you, there are patients that will come in um, wanting to do, you know, purely cosmetics and that's fine too. You know, as, as long as, you know, everything else from a medical point of view is addressed, you know, we're, we're open to that as well. But um, ultimately, you've got to be happy in your own skin, and that's what our goal is, to get you there. So it seems like there's a little bit of, of dermatology practice that is psychology-based. Oh, absolutely. Is <laughs> <laughs> working with people based on their needs. Um, excellent. Now, I, I do want to hear more about Dr. Vader's practice, but we are going to take a break on Health 411 for some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, recording from the Digital Bronx Studios. You're listening to Health 411. We are having a conversation today about dermatology and the dermatology practice with Dr. Veda from Robbinsville, New Jersey, and Aura Dermatology. And I know in the break, Dan, you indicated you have a question for Dr. Veda. Yeah, so previously you mentioned how work-life balance was extremely important to you. And so is that kind of what drove you to start your own practice? I mean, are there hospital dermatologists that work exclusively in a hospital setting, or is it mostly those in private practice? So great question. Um, So usually dermatology, I would say the vast majority of dermatologists work in an outpatient setting. So we're almost always in a private practice setting. Um, There are some dermatologists, um, mostly those who are affiliated with um, universities or um, bigger hospitals who may also work in an inpatient setting where they see a lot of in consultations for um, inpatients, but I'll say the vast majority of um, dermatologists work in an outpatient or a private practice setting. Now I worked at another group for about seven years. So I didn't start my own practice right out of residency. You know, I think, you know, very often, you know, you learn the, the medical part of things in residency, but you don't necessarily learn the business of medicine um, during residency. So for me, it was important to a, you know, make sure that I got my feet wet medically, make sure that I was comfortable with what I was doing. And as I went through the years, picked up a lot of different tips on how to you know, run a practice and what things to do um, and things not to do. And finally, I got to a kind of crossroads in my career. Do I 
stay on and just remain an associate at an existing practice? Or again, do I take that leap? And it was always a goal of mine, you know, even from when I started medical school that one day I wanted to own and operate my own practice. So um, finally, when the, the everything aligned, all the cards aligned, you know, um, went, went ahead and took that leap. And of course, the initial undertaking of starting a practice is vast. And, you know, I needed the support of my wife and <laughs> my family and friends and all of that, without which it would not have been possible. Because, you know, I have twins and um, mm. someone has to take care, yeah, <laughs> take care of sure. them. And I started three years ago when they were four, four and a half years old. So um, I had to have a huge commitment from her and her support was unwavering. So that was that was um, kind of my driving force behind it. But now at Aura Dermatology, we definitely stress work like life balance. So not only for just the providers, but also for our staff. You know, we we are work hard, play hard type of practice. You know, we um, do a lot of outings with our staff. We we build in a lot of, you know, days where we um, do staff meetings, staff treatments, you know, um, let everyone have a voice, you know, let everyone you know, have a good um, balance with their family life as well as work life. So we, we are a strong believer in that. And dermatology, I'm lucky to say, allows that because, again, it's predominantly an outpatient um, endeavor for, for most people. So I like the fact that I can, you know, make my own schedule or say, you know, I want to work eight to five or nine 30 to six on this day, or, you know what, I'm taking this day off, but mm -hmm. I'm going to open up on Saturday and I can do that if I want, because it's, you know, it's my practice and it gives me that flexibility. So in that regard, I think work-life balance is a huge, huge part of what we do and definitely a huge part of what um, certain specialties do. So again, for aspiring um, students, aspiring medical students, you know, when you're considering um, different specialties, you know, you also have to prioritize what is important to you. You know, if, if you're going to be someone that thrives in a hospital setting and you want to, you know, very, very um, rigorous, you know, um, you know, say, I want to do trauma surgery, I want to do neurosurgery, and that's really what your passion is, go for it. But, you know, you also have to realize like, hey, if I want to balance that with a family and what are some other goals that you may want to do outside of work, um, that's something to consider when you look at some other specialties that may offer that balance a little bit more. Cool. And Dan, you had a, a second question uh, about skin cancer. Right. So as we're kind of going into the warmer months, you know, spring break for us is around the corner. I assume you would see a higher incidence of skin cancer. Now, what are sort of the signs and symptoms? What are some preventative measures that, you know, can help prevent skin cancer? Absolutely. So, um, First off, I'm sure you're looking forward to spring break. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but make sure you pack that sunscreen mm -hmm. because that's probably the single most important thing um, when it comes to prevention. And sunscreen that you use now is great, but we actually start telling a lot of our patients, you know, to start teaching their kids at a very young age that, you know, sunscreen is important from your first and earliest sun exposure because... Research has shown that it's sun during those years that really, really can cause a lot of harm down the road. So, you know, when it comes to childhood burns, um, a lot of excessive um, childhood sun exposure, that cumulative effect is what can manifest as skin cancer, you know, decades later. So sunscreen, probably the single most important thing that you can do from a preventative point of view. And, you know, even the from a population point of view, it's been shown that just using sunscreen alone 
um, can decrease the risk of melanoma by 50%. Mm -hmm. It can reduce the risk of squamous cell carcinoma by about 40%. And from an aesthetic point of view, it's also very, very helpful in terms of preventing premature skin aging. So honestly, you know, if the medical aspect of it is not enough, then at least from an aesthetic or cosmetic aspect, understand that, you know, a lot of sun exposure now may look good when your skin is tan, but 20 years from now, when the wrinkles start to show up, you may not be too thrilled with that. Mm. Are all sunscreens created equal? Great question. Um, so personally, I feel like you always want to look for a sunscreen that is broad spectrum. So what I mean by that is you want a sunscreen that says that it has UVA and UVB coverage because not all of them do. Um, thankfully, these days and with some of the regulations now from the FDA, I would say the vast majority, if not all sunscreens that I've seen you know, on the shelves have broad spectrum coverage, but you always want to look for UVA, UVB coverage. You want to look for an at least SPF of 30 or higher. And then the two big categories of sunscreens are physical blockers versus chemical blockers. So physical blockers would be your zinc oxide or your titanium dioxide containing sunscreens, which in my opinion, offer far greater protection than the chemical sunscreens, which are great, but they also allow the UV rays to be absorbed into your skin before those chemicals neutralize the effect of those rays versus the physical blockers purely just block the sun. So mm -hmm. I am a huge um, proponent of physical sunscreens over the chemical um, broad spectrum SPF 30 or higher. Cool. And is your advice about sunscreens the same irrespective of people's ethnic skin color? Like so usually, with people with darker so you, skin, do they have more protection and might not need as high an SPF as somebody with more pale skin? Well, I think, you know, great question because from a biological point of view, I mean, you know, those ethnicities that reside close to the equator, I mean, you, you know, you see people who are in the Caribbean or, you know, um, even some of the um, Middle Eastern latitudes, you know, you are seeing populations that probably don't even use sunscreen. You know, I, I can speak from experience growing up. I never used it. My parents probably even to this day don't use it despite me telling them they should. <laughs> it's, you know, there's a lot of cultural variation. You know, there, there are a lot of people that feel like, look, you know, I tan when I go outside or I've never even tanned because I have darker skin complexion that they may never, never use it. On the contrary, you know, populations that are in, you know, Northern Ireland or some of the Northern latitudes, you know, more Caucasian skin, um, blonde hair, blue eye type of skin types, you, you may very historically say, look, I go outside, I burn, you know, I've been using sunscreen since I was a kid. So, so definitely ethnic variations come into play. For me, I, I counsel all my patients, regardless of skin color to wear it. Mm -hmm. And again, um, not only from a skin cancer risk point of view, but there are other factors that the sun can also affect, right? So for darker skin patients who may have pigmentation problems, their pigmentation will get worse being in the sun. For lighter skin patients, you know, you obviously will get, you know, more freckles or you may develop more moles or a higher incidence of skin cancer. And then for all patients, as I alluded to earlier, um, sun, sun exposure will prematurely age you and no one wants to hear that. Mm -hmm. so, so when you mention that aspect of it, you know, I tell everyone, wear it every single day, not just the beach days, not just the pool days, but every day. Um, because you are in the sun every single day, whether you know it or not. And, and and nowadays, I don't see as many of them as I used to. But 
What does a dermatologist think about the, the tanning bed industry? Wow, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the tanning bed industry, like the tobacco industry, you know, you're, you're looking at a multi-billion dollar yes. industry. So, you know, trying to get any legislation passed, you know, to um, ban tanning salons for um, patients of certain ages has always been challenging. I know um, there's a lot of states that have made advances in that, but as a dermatologist, I feel like tanning beds are a big no-no. I know, um, you know, there's social media and, and um, you know, when you see various shows like, you know, um, Jersey Shore and all these things, it's always glamorized. You know, you want to have tan skin. But just remember that even one indoor tanning session before age 35 increases the lifetime risk of developing melanoma by 75%, just one. Wow. And, and I can't tell you how many times I see patients that say, Oh, don't worry. I only tan, you know, like once a month or, you know, whenever I have an event coming up or I do a pre-tan before the summer so that I don't burn. And that is that that causes, you know, when you hear that screeching sound on the blackboard and you're like, I can't hear that. Um, that's probably the worst thing that I want to hear on a daily basis. Yeah. But uh, but no, we frown upon tanning bed use um, because it is just not um, good for the skin at all. Okay. And, and I, um, yeah, I, I, from an aging <laughs> point of view, it will age you. I'm sorry to raise the, the hair in the back of your neck with that <laughs> one. But let's take a, a quick break on Health 411 for some underwriting announcements. And we'll be right back to continue this conversation with Dr. Veda about dermatology. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We're recording from the Digital Bronx Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and Dan and I are having a conversation about dermatology with Dr. Dashan Veda from Aura Dermatology located in Robbinsville, New Jersey. At the end of the last segment, we were talking a little bit about tanning beds, and that brought up the question about these uh, chemical agents that can either theoretically stimulate tanning or melanin production in the skin or create, you know, tan skin. What, what's the dermatological approach of those, of those um, items? Absolutely. So, you know, sunless tanning, which is kind of the, the broad category, you know, people will do um, self tanners that are topical sprays. There's also um, lotions that you can apply. You know, there's even sunscreens that have, you know, this self tanning component to them so that, you know, you can still get that color, if you will. And there's various ingredients um, in these products that can um, give you that color. So there's a, um, a a very common compound called DHA. It's a type of sunless tanning product that you know, depending on the concentration that it contains, the product can give you different shades of tan. Um, there's also um, carotenoids. You know, carotenoids are antioxidants that are found in certain fruits, you know, carrots, tomatoes, and such. But um, carotenoids can also be used in certain products to give you more of like this, you know, orangish, brownish color. Um, you know, there's another ingredient called lycopene, um, beta carotenes. There's different ingredients, some that are more naturally occurring and others that are more just there for um, providing pigmentation. Um, but these are uh, products that 
are used in different combinations to give you different, um, I guess, shades of tan, if you will. So could you tell when we had a president who looked a little bit orange on TV, <laughs> could, as a dermatologist, could you tell what was going on? Absolutely not. I have no clue. What <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about, though, right? I know exactly what you're talking about. I would have loved to take a, a makeup wipe and see what comes off. <laughs> Okay, just, just for curiosity. Um, so, would you? So, you'd recommend some of those sprays, lotions? Um, it sounds like before you would even go near a tanning bed or tanning salon, kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I just want to. I, I, I just want to. all the time, be, actually. Be, that you know, I would much rather they yeah. they do artificial tans or spray tans over um, a tanning salon. And you know, depending on you know what kind of product you're using, you know, some of these spray tans can last for several days. So if you know, look, I'm going away on a vacation and I want to get some color, you know, you know, you'll be covered for that entire time frame. Um, and there are people that do it on a more regular basis. You know, they'll go once a month, you know, once every couple of weeks. So I think, you know, depending on what kind of products you're using, you can do it on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis. But um, they're always safer to use than than getting an actual tan from the tanning bed. And, and, and I'd have to say probably safer than... I'm old enough in the day that people sort of the opposite of um, um, sunscreen would actually put oils on their skin. That's right. You're, you're shaking your head. That's not a good idea. I hear that all the time. Baby oil, iodine. Yeah. Yep. And, um, you know, the aluminum reflectors. Mm. I actually had a patient tell me one time she used Coca-Cola. Um, so Coca-Cola wow. to give that, you know, kind of caramelized brown color <laughs> in addition to the iodine and the baby oil. And I said, wow, I... I, I couldn't even imagine, you know, um, that era. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 those are real. That stuff, that stuff used, <laughs> used to happen. Um, I have to ask you, too, because you, you mentioned Botox, and uh, I'm a Ooh. neuroscience professor, so I teach about Botox, I, you know, but I teach about it sort of neurobiology. And I, I hope I never go to a dermatologist and have that conversation about Botox, but I'm curious, how does a dermatologist talk to a patient about Botox? Because everybody's heard what it is. Like, mm -hmm. how do you talk about these things in, 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 the, in the clinic or in your office? Absolutely. So Botox has been around now for almost you know, 20 years, if not more. Um, so it's gained a lot of popularity. I mean, it's probably one of the most popular cosmetic products or popular cosmetic treatments, rather, um, that people come in for. Um, so a lot of times I don't have to bring it up at all. They're coming in oh, asking me about yeah. it. But let's say if you know patients come in and say, well, you know, I want to look younger. I want to rejuvenate my skin. I have a lot of a, a lot of lines, and most of the time, you know, they bring up lines in between their eyebrows. We call that the glabella. They'll have either a one or an eleven um, in that area. A lot of times, people will have horizontal forehead lines. Sometimes lines that emanate from the sides of their eyes. We call that the crow's feet area. So they'll say, "Well, what can I do for these lines?" and and that's where um, Botox has its best effect. So. As you know, Professor, uh, Botox is working by, you know, relaxing those muscles. It's a toxin. It's a neurotoxin that, you know, paralyzes the muscle, if you will. And by you not moving that muscle and you not creating those lines, it's going to help to smoothen out that area and improve the appearance over time. So that's pretty much what Botox is doing is it's just preventing you from moving the muscle that creates the lines in the first place. Yeah. And, and just I'm curious about this, as I know there's different kinds of Botox. Does a dermatologist, how do you pick which one to use under what circumstances? So in most instances, 
um, their effect is pretty interchangeable. So I would say for the vast majority of patients, if I didn't tell you which brand I was using, you probably wouldn't be able to tell, you know, um, because they're all going to work well. But in certain patients, there's certain nuances. You know, there's some toxins that um, have an earlier onset. There's some that have a larger diffusion area. So in certain areas, or let's say for someone doing a forehead, or if they have a larger forehead that we're treating, you know, you want to have more of a smoother, uh, more natural effect. We, I may go towards one or another. Um, if, if someone has, let's say, an, a sensitivity to a product, then there's one um, one version of neurotoxin that it tends to be more naturally derived. So there's different nuances in that regard, but I would say for the vast majority of patients, you know, it's going to be indistinguishable um, which one I would use. So so functionally, they're the same, even though the, the yeah. they're different proteases with these different types. It's interesting. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So, and so I, I have to ask you this, this is because I'm curious. There's a lot of um, um, TV shows now, and you mentioned mm -hmm. Jersey Shore, but there's other ones like Dr. Pimple Popper kind of things. How have those TV shows impacted the practice? I'm assuming you don't have a TV show somewhere that you're on, but you have a practice. You have a practice. I mean, how have those shows impacted what you see in your in your office? Well, the first and most importantly, those shows are. I think they've really popularized dermatology, and and Dr. Sandra Lee, she's awesome. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times people come in and say. You know, I watch Dr. Pimple Popper and I love, you know, when you guys squeeze that stuff out and, um, you know, I would love to come watch or, or a lot of times these days, you know, in the world of social media, um, patients will ask if they can record what I'm doing because they want to show their friends or show their family like, hey, look, this is what came out of me. <laughs> so I think it has popularized dermatology um, in many ways, but, um, but also it's also, it's another way of education because I know with Dr. Pimple Popper, a lot of the cases that she takes on are very, very difficult. I mean, I I'm not seeing that type of patient in my Robbinsville office by any stretch. But um, patients will come in and say, "I saw this, and I and I wonder if you, know, you can do X, Y, and Z." Or I saw this on you know um, social media, or I saw this on TikTok, and you know, do you guys offer this? So, so while there are some, you know. Um, cons of you know, how dermatology is portrayed, you know, the popularization of dermatology on some of these um, avenues has also been great for our practice. That's good. Um, and the a reality of, you know, modern or current dermatology is COVID. Has COVID uh, changed your practice? Um, can you do like a Zoom, like we're doing now, a Zoom dermatological exam? Um, how has it changed how you have to operate? Absolutely. So that was, that was probably the single biggest change that we had with COVID is, you know, um, really, really incorporating um, teledermatology into our practice a lot more. And even now, you know, patients that, you know, throughout the pandemic, we've been seeing virtually still prefer to be seen virtually, you know, so, so Dan, if I was seeing you for acne, and let's say, three months later, six months later, you said, look, you know, I'm doing well. I know you want to see me for a follow, but you know, I, I have an exam on Monday mm -hmm. and I'd rather just, um, you know, zoom in if I can, it's now an option and we're equipped, you know, as a practice to handle it. You know, I think pre COVID, you know, I saw maybe, you know, an occasional um, teledermatology case here and there. Now there's not a day that goes by where I don't have a teledermatology patient. So that's probably the single biggest change is that we're able to do a lot virtually um, of course, it doesn't, you know, replace the in-person exam or if you say, hey, I have a mole, you know, I may not be able to at this 
distance tell you, hey, that mole looks fine. So there's certain things that I still have to see in person, but but a lot of conditions, you know, eczema management, um, acne, a lot of things that I can, you know, see and follow up virtually, um, you know, it's very, very convenient for both ourselves and the patient. So that's probably the single biggest change. Um, the other thing that COVID did is because people were staring at themselves on Zoom all day long, you know, they, <laughs> they, they noticed certain things about themselves that maybe they never noticed before. So um, contrary to what most people thought are, um, Cosmetics and aesthetic dermatology um, treatments actually went sky high because people are like, I see myself now and I don't like this, or I see myself more and someone on the other end of the screen pointed something out. So that was another huge change that we saw um, that people were coming in a lot more than, than before for cosmetic procedures that um, they otherwise would not have. And many procedures are required downtime. Now people had all the time in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. Who cares if you, um, you know, look red and blue for seven days? You aren't going anywhere. So it allowed people to be a little bit more aggressive with certain procedures that they otherwise may not yeah. have even considered had they, you know, yeah, been in the office. Yeah, or in a sense, you're looking at a mirror all day, the mm -hmm. entire workday. I hadn't thought of that. That that yeah, it's a, it's a great advertisement for dermatology. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of this segment and the end of this program. Um, I want to thank Dr. Veda. Thank you so much for participating. To remind everybody, Dr. Veda from Aura Dermatology. Um, his office is in Robbinsville, New Jersey. Thank you again for so for listening. This has been a great conversation. This is 1077thebronc.com. We're recording live from the Digital Bronx Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of Rider University and Capital Health's efforts to bring people together to address and discuss issues associated with all aspects of health and healthcare. I hope today's conversation has helped inform you about dermatology and the kind of things that go on in the office and the kind of things that um, attract dermatologists to that profession. If you have questions and or comments about this program or want to make suggestions for future broadcasts, please email us at health 411 at rider.edu. Remember, you have a doctor's appointment scheduled for every Sunday at 10 a.m. Don't miss the all-new Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp and our expert medical guest from Capital Health. You can listen to Health 411 anytime on demand. Go to 1077thebronc.com slash health411 to listen to past episodes or tune in every Thursday at 9 a.m. to hear the weekend rewind edition of Health 411. Health 411 on 1077thebronc is underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff as well as advanced technology.